can anybody hear me? I can hear you now. Oh, there can we you go. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much for your time. I'm really excited to get to talk to you because as we were having a, an email conversation about the the latest release of uh, of this journal I put together, you struck me as somebody who's done this for a long time, who has a, a bit of experience with um, the creative pursuit, and I'm just kind of curious and wanted to pick your brain about it. So is it okay if we start at the beginning and how you got into writing? Certainly. Uh, it was very simple. I was largely into the sciences and reading science fiction and occasional historical fiction. And then one day I met a young woman who's, uh, let's say, good graces I wanted to get into. <laughs> and she was into poetry. Uh, she was reading back then. It was a popular Rod McEwen. You've probably never heard of him, uh, a pop poet of the time. And I said, well, if I want to get into uh, this young lady's good graces, I think I'll go to the library and study some poetry. <laughs> so I went in and I picked up a book at random, literally at random. And it was Randall Gerald's The Lost World. Opened it up, started reading, and that was it. I was hooked. And uh, I was into literature from that point forward. I was 16 at the time. I published my first poem when I was 18 in a magazine called Nocturne out of Brooklyn, New York. And uh, don't have that poem, don't know where it is, don't remember seeing the magazine, but uh, I published a fair number of poems through the years. It got involved with the uh, local poetry scene. Uh, back then, we were doing mimeograph. I don't know if you remember mimeograph or not. Mm -hmm. And uh, just bumped along from there. Uh, I've kind of been on the outside of, I guess what you call classic poetics. I don't have an academic background in literature. Uh, my background is in the first bachelor's degree was in psychology. Second bachelor's degree, so I can make a living, was in computer science. <laughs> and uh, basically, that's what I did. So now I've got uh, two books that came out from commercial publishers. Got sick of that. And I've had eight books come out under my own imprint uh, for our... Uh, flash fiction and uh for our speculative poetry hmm. so now that we we got into the the your own imprint i'm curious what led you to ditch the traditional system of finding a publisher and just doing it on your own just saying you know what i can i can do this myself can you elaborate a little bit on that back when i was uh in my first writing period from uh, 1974 to 1995 I witnessed a change in the industry. You saw more and more contest fees. You didn't used to see contest fees, which are just uh, reading fees with makeup on. Uh, <laughs> and you saw the development of MFA programs. Back when I started, you had Columbia and you had Iowa, and that was about it. And as writing creative front, it became more of an industry where people were actually making money, not the writers, but some of the presses. I began to worry about it, and then uh, I like what Allen Ginsberg said. I've been in one night in Washington, D.C., and I was saying, hey, our local college just got an MFA program. And he said, yeah, MFA programs are great for hiring writers, but they're going to be the death of American literature. Mm. And I didn't realize how true that was at the time. I was taken aback, but I've come to agree with that. Mm. And... Uh, Basically, I stopped writing in 1995 after I submitted a, a manuscript to a publisher, paid a contest fee, then met the guy who won the contest uh, and uh, 
tip never tried to out drink me. We were drinking and he was about totally looped. And I asked him, what was it about your manuscript that uh, caused you to win? And he said, oh, there was never a contest. Uh, he uh, had decided to publish my book and he just advertised the contest to get the fees to do so. Oh, wow. After which wow. I stopped writing for 14 years. I just said, you know, it's not worth it. This this whole field has gotten to be pretty scummy and I just, just want to get away from it, Oh man, which I did. But in 2009, though, I decided that was not a very mature reaction to it. Uh, I really <laughs> needed to be more combative and to do my own thing. So I got back into writing and there are plenty of, of, of reputable publishers and plenty of uh, people working uphill against uh, the bureaucracies, but there's a lot of scamming going on there also. Mm. Oddly enough, I compared it to uh, my wife's bodybuilding. She was a bodybuilder for about 10 years. Mm. And as I got into that, I found a lot of the uh, promoters were saying, gee, we're doing so much work for you. We're doing so work so hard. We're spending so much money. And when you got back behind it and looked at the books, they were making money hand over fist. Mm. So uh, then when I looked at some of the publishing houses and their fees and the way they structure how they do things, uh, they were not necessarily becoming rich, but they were affording decent vacations with uh, the money they were making from publishing authors. I mean, I think it's ridiculous to ask somebody to fit to uh, send you $35 as a reading fee, and then you're going to give them a pup book and $1,500. Yeah, yeah, that's when you do uh, the numbers. Steep. Uh, you know, I, I never thought that there would be money in publishing, especially, you know, indie publishing. Are, are we talking about like publication houses of like decent size or what, what, you know, what are we talking about here with the types Most of, of these are smaller? Okay. Uh, I, I did the analysis, uh, it came out in a magazine called fear of monkeys. It's a uh, run out of Canada. And, uh, I was just grousing with the editor and, uh, he said, yeah, it's beginning to get like that in Canada. He had noticed that a lot of the small press, these are definitely small press people mm. were doing very well. And, uh, that Canada was beginning to emulate that. And he was very sad to see it happen. And after that grousing, it turned into an article about, uh, how you can be scammed in the small presses. And we're not talking about major houses that are publishing hundreds of books. We're talking about places that publish one, two, three, seven books a year. And uh, the pricing structure is such that they're going to make a little bit. We're not talking about people who are you know, taking money, buying Mercedes and living up on the hill. We're talking about people who are pocketing two, three, four, five thousand dollars $5,000 out of it and uh, trying to tell you that they're doing this all for the love of the artist, which is not really the case. So it seems now, that you, not everybody's oh, like ahead. that. Yeah, not everybody's like I said, that. Not everybody's like that. There, there are some people that are, you know, really doing hard work to try to promote literature, but it's very easy to turn this into a scam. What I'm looking at now, particularly, is a lot of the writing conferences. Uh, I keep getting these advertisements to say, gee, for $850, you can sit on 12 sessions with this whatever author and uh, improve your writing and i'm thinking my god if, if they sell out 10 people that's eight thousand dollars i wonder how much the writer is getting and how much the uh sponsor is getting mm. and there's one place i know that does this like 12 times a year well if you're doing eight thousand dollars times 12 times a year times uh you know it's that's ninety six thousand dollars so mm. 
where's the money going? I, I would just like to see an express a spreadsheet on all this that probably comes from my background in data analysis i mean i spent 33 years <laughs> yeah in computers yeah. and it, it just i want to see the numbers right right so it seems that you have created your own solution to this problem which is to start your own imprint run it the way that you that you desire the the way that it should be right can you tell me a little bit about how you run your own imprint initially i started out creating Barking Moose Press, LLC, a limited liability corporation in the state of Virginia. Uh, that cost me a bit of money because I had to pay a, a, uh, a corporation fee and I had to pay personal property tax both to the city and the state. And I learned that in Virginia, I don't know about other states, you can register what's called a fictitious name. So for $15, I registered the name Barking Moose Press. And now I'm running that. It's sort of a case of, what they call trading ads. Barking Moose Press is my trade name for Ken Pointer. Mm. Uh, it makes it a lot easier because my taxes all can come together into one unit. Mm. Now, I don't know graphics design, but uh, I went through what used to be called CreateSpace. Now it's called Kindle Direct. Oh, yeah, yeah. And created, created my book on Amazon. Now, I bought my own ISBN so that I have control of my book. If, if you basically take the free ISBN that Amazon gives you, Amazon can control your book. But I went through Booker and bought my own ISBN. I went to a, a corporation in Canada called eBook Launch and had them produce the cover and the internals because I don't know <laughs> graphics design. If I knew graphics design, I could do it myself. Uh, I had a friend of mine do a logo for Barking Moose, which is a moose in a circle, has a moose head to it. <laughs> and like I said, then bought my own uh, ISBNs, and mm -hmm. my books are uh, covered by uh, Ingram, the uh, international book seller. So literally, you can go to Finland, go to a bookstore and say, I'd like to get Kim Pointer's book. You'd have to say it in Finn. <laughs> and uh, they can look it up in the Ingram catalog and can order it for you right there. Yeah. Uh, and my book shows up on not just Amazon, which is a problem for a lot of people. They restrict to Amazon. Mine shows up on Diesel Books, uh, shows up on Barnes & Noble, shows up on uh, Kobo eBooks, uh, shows up on Sony eBooks. So it's basically everywhere. So you've you've chosen to have complete autonomy over the work and not rely on a company like Amazon, which is really sadly the one place where people with limited funds can get started on their their stuff. But you're, it seems like you're making the argument that you can still do it without completely relying on Amazon for publication. Exactly. If you can do your own graphics design, and be careful. What I do is I go out to. Uh, uh, unsplash and i find a a, a uh, copyright zero picture the one that can sure, totally sure. for free yeah use that uh, i design my own uh cover that i send it off to ebook uh launch because i can't do it right <laughs> uh and uh, basically but if you can do your own design uh, it would cost you about 110 dollars to get a isbn yeah from a boker and that's your only cost now if you can't do your own graphic design which i cannot uh, depending upon the size of your book and the complexity of the cover, basically you can probably do the entire package, produce your book for about seven to nine hundred dollars total. 
Hmm. Now, for some people, that's a lot of money. For some people, it's not. Uh, of course, all the profits are yours, basically off of a book that uh, I charge $13 for on Amazon. Yeah. Amazon sends me a, a check for about $4 for each book. Mm-hmm. So it depends on how many books you think you're going to sell. I mean, to, to make back $800 at, at $4 a book, you obviously got to sell 200 yeah. books. So uh, how do you... Unfortunately... Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Unfortunately... Most small press books sell about uh, 35 to 50 copies. And that includes the ones that are put out by supposed name presses. Mm. So how do you go about achieving that goal? Because it seems like you're a numbers guy. You're pretty set on saying, okay, this is how much I'm sinking into this. Do you, do you always say I got to make this back or do you, do you have strategies for marketing or for getting the word out so that you can, you can treat it more like a, like a business the, the book itself unfortunately in my case it's if it's a business it's long term the first book i did this way was my collection of short fiction called uh constant animals and i put that out in 2013 so we're coming up about nine mm-hmm. years and that has made back what i put into it but oh, only great. recently yeah uh it, it you know now i've got seven other books out there to make the money back <laughs> on yeah uh Chances are, at my age, I won't live long enough to get the money back. <laughs> you have to be okay acknowledging that it might not be a profitable enterprise, but it has to be done. You don't really have a choice. Well, you have to do this you know, writing, not so much because you think you're going to make a lot of money. If you want to make a lot of money, go into something else, You know, become a, a gigolo, whatever. <laughs> uh, but with, with writing, what you write for or what I write for is that occasional person who says, wow, I never thought of that. You really opened my mind to something or, you know, the, gee, that's strange. I never thought of it coming from that angle. And then you go, okay, I've done something. Uh, But if it's about money, you're not going to make it unless you want to write uh, 50 shades of gray again. Sure. Sure. And I guess I was wondering if you ever take that into consideration, the marketability of a, of a work, or uh, even though you're a numbers guy, do you set that part of your mind aside to say, I'm, going to write what I have to write. This is it. And then figure out how to market it later. Or do you think exactly? That, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I write what I want to write. Hopefully somebody will like it. Uh, one of the hardest things to do as a writer is to match your writing to the market. You've got to know what people want. Mm-hmm. Something that I might uh, have published in analog uh, would not be good, perhaps in your magazine, or it wouldn't do well in uh, the Iowa Review. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, you have to sit down and look at marketing, but when you're writing, the market is not in your mind or not mm-hmm. in my mind, at least. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm curious of this, this thing that you mentioned earlier that, uh, there, there's sort of opposing forces sometimes in publishing or in the creative fields, because there's established places where people go in a traditional education, right? Like if folks go into a college, they, they sort of have a built-in network, right? For, for the arts. And I'm curious, because you didn't take that route, how you went about creating your own community or your own support system for, for creativity, because I do think it's necessary, but it seems like from our emails that maybe that's not something that you, that you had initially, or at least no camaraderie with, uh, you know, some of the local institutions. I really don't have much connection. I I show up with, we have a local writer center 
and I occasionally show up, but it's more of a in your face sort of thing. I don't think they really care much for me. And uh, uh, that comes because I do not come out of their uh, their grooming uh, method. I didn't get an MFA. I'm not worried about uh, academic credentials. I'm not worried about tenure. Mm. At the same time, I probably publish more than any of them. I mean, I've published close to 2,000 pieces of work. Uh, I think one reason I did not get much into the books on the small press size side is small press is sort of inward looking looking it looks for other mfa people it looks for people inside the the community and so if you're outside the community you just haven't got much of a chance mm. so how do you go about creating your own what what's something that has sustained you in in a way do you feel like that's even necessary to have that kind of community no not really i mean you have to be self-sufficient uh i've always been that way uh you know i put myself through college as a security guard so that leads to one type of personality and i worked for the military for about 33 years that tends to put put you into a different sort of mentality and uh my reaction is uh if you don't want to accept me then that's your problem <laughs> mm. not yeah. mine uh and uh also, I've been in the uh, the weightlifting community for a while. I've been lifting weights for 55 years. My wife did uh, bodybuilding for about 10 years, and she now does powerlifting. Wow. Uh, we're getting ready to do a powerlifting meet in November. She's going to do the 100% uh, raw world meet. Oh, that's and, wild. And uh, it kind of builds a little bit of, I don't want to say character, maybe it builds uh, a bit of backbone. But uh, I perfectly feel fine when somebody's sort of sneering at me because I'm not trying to get academic tenure. Uh, it, it doesn't bother me at all. I'm like, hey, that's your world. Enjoy it. But I'm somewhere else. And that's interesting because that one of the curious things, one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you was because of that that approach that you have to life, right? <laughs> Where you you have your own set of of pieces or aspects to your life that fit so well within what you do. But it is it is something that a lot of us don't hear often, you know, you can be a writer, you can be a creative, and still have a life still have other commitments and build your life with, with a great quality of life, you know, and have writing be a part of it, but not be the all encompassing thing that consumes your every thought. Do you feel that that's a, a fair assessment? Yes, you have to compartmentalize. And this is going to sound strange, but my wife likes to walk a lot, and I like to walk. And normally I would walk with her, and that's what we would do many afternoons, probably what we're going to do this afternoon. Now, I've hurt my back recently. Hopefully it's getting better. But because I hurt my back, I carry my notebook, and while she's walking, I write. <laughs> it's just a matter of these are my options. I'd rather walk. Yeah. But I'm not going to walk. I'm not going to sit here and stare at the at the the sky. I'm sitting down at a picnic bench where we go walking, and <laughs> I write my drables, which is what I'm into now. Right now is is drables. It's mm -hmm. an interesting form that I usually mm -hmm. used to ignore, and suddenly I decided maybe it does have some angles I can use. Yeah. So, uh, but to to me, it's like either or. Okay, I want to walk. Can't walk? Maybe I'll write. It's not like writing becomes a consuming thing that requires that I sit down and do it all the time. Uh, there are days that I don't write. There are days that I have three or four writing sessions. It's just whatever the opportunity is. Yeah. And are you still, are you still employed or are you retired? You said. 
I retired six years ago. Oh, wow. It's cool. been a weird situation. I uh, worked specifically for the government as a government employee hmm. uh, because I knew I could retire early and I was looking forward to retiring early, which hmm. is what I did. <laughs> Unfortunately, I retired in the middle of October 19, uh, 2015. My wife had a contest at the end of October. Her mother had a stroke at the beginning of November, oh. and we went through all sorts of, of hell with that. Goodness. And then uh, my sister had a double vasectomy in April of 2016. Mm. Then my mother went into the nursing home in uh, October of 2016. And I was just telling my wife, we really just got to the point recently where now we know what retirement is because uh, uh, my mother passed away in January 2017. My oh, sister wow. had metastatic breast cancer. She passed of COVID in 2021, was it? Yeah, yeah, 20, and, uh, 21. Yeah, and we had all sorts of problems. Her finances were insane. She was my only relative. I was her only relative, so it came down to me. So we were running around from courthouse to courthouse and places oh. trying to get her stuff figured out. Yeah, and then, matter of fact, the last bill we paid off in February of this year, 2022. Wow. And now we're like, okay, we, we can relax. You know? <laughs> yeah. That's a lot of life in a couple of years. I mean, a lot of extreme hardship right there. Do you feel like um, emotionally you're on the other side of that? Yes, that's the thing. It, like I said, it, the feeling was when we retired first, I said to myself, wow, now we're going to get used to this retirement. We'll get her through the contest, and then probably about mid-November, we'll understand what being retired is. And uh, that didn't happen. That mm -hmm. didn't happen until probably six months ago. Mm -hmm. And uh, now we're kind of like, okay, we're in good shape. We just went out bought a new car for our travels. We, we don't oh. travel long distance, but we love to take uh, overnight trips. Cool, uh, cool. We go up to uh, Chincoteague, where Sundial Books has a – pointer corner where they sell all my books they sell <laughs> cool. more books there than anywhere else nice and nice. uh i drive up there uh restock the books and spend the night and charge it off as an expense <laughs> and then come back and enjoy the uh i don't know what you know about the area but uh, chincoteague is an island mm. uh, across a narrow strait is acetate where they have uh wild ponies and a large uh, nature preserve so it's a nice quaint little town it's wonderful place just to get away for the night oh, amazing it's about a two-hour drive from here across uh, the bridge so mm. we got a, a car that would accommodate us with that mm. and in about 10 days we're having solar panels put on the roof so we're kind of catching up to where we want to be <laughs> no that's amazing i mean you've just in that span of time alone it seems that there has been so much that I'm curious if, if that's something that you ever draw from or if you try to stick to, you know, as you said, maybe um, the fictional or or do you feel like it's necessary to mine those experiences for work, for creativity, or do you leave them alone? Most of my creativity, I think, comes from my reading. Now, I've got uh, a uh, article coming out in, in Fear of Monkeys again about an interesting uh, experience i was over in israel studying a product for the u.s navy and they asked us to go by the u.n compound and to go to the u.n compound you have to go through a minefield well they have wow. it marked out the sappers mark out every morning and we're right halfway through the minefield and the guy that was leading us said oh shit 
which is the last thing you want to hear when you're standing <laughs> oh in the middle God. of a minefield. Yeah. And uh, I said, what, what are you talking about? He says, they changed the lines. Apparently, oh after God. the sappers came out and marked the safe path, the locals came out and moved the lines around. So wow. he said, uh, well, just step back in the steps you stepped in. Of course, about that time, you know, the testicles have retreated three inches <laughs> up into the body. And, you know, you're saying, how in hell am I going to see my steps? We went out, finally got out of it. There were about four of us. Got in the car, went back to the hotel and started drinking. This was probably <laughs> 10 o'clock in the morning. And oh, that was it for goodness. the day for us. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> Good Lord. So I, I, I wrote up about that uh, for, for, but that's one of the few things that I've written. I've written that one essay also on uh, presses, sort of a buyer beware, because mm. I want everybody to know, you know, to be careful with that. Yeah, at the yeah. same time, uh, I don't want to discourage anybody from trying to publish, but, uh, at, or from publishing in the small presses, because there are good small presses. But I just want everyone to know. I mean, I'm lucky. I'm old. I'm ugly, kind of mean-spirited. Uh, I've been able to check out certain things, and I think everybody should go into it. You know, it's like getting married. Go mm. into it not with expectations, but with understanding. Mm. Right, right. Now I'll be married uh, yeah, 45 yeah. years in a few days here, October oh, wow. the 15th. Early congrats. Early congratulations. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so, thank you. We're going to probably go to a... Uh, a ghost walk for celebration. Oh, nice. What's what's a ghost walk? Uh, you go to a, a site. We probably go down to Eden, North Carolina, which is about uh, 90 minutes away. And a local historian will walk you around the town oh. and point out various sites that are supposed to be, quote unquote, haunted or have had spectral uh, experiences. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, later, we'll go to one in... Uh, Old Town Portion, which is just across the water. It's about uh, 20 minutes away. Uh, they do it up by having actors actually on the porches of the various houses. Old Town is the second largest historic district in the United States, only mm -hmm. uh, behind Savannah, Georgia. Yeah. A lot of older homes there. And uh, they will have actors stand on the porch and give you a recitation of the supposed ghostly activity that has occurred there. Mm. And it takes about an hour you go through. It's it's nice. The money is for the uh old town uh junior uh is it junior uh business league or something. It's a kid's charity of some sort. Oh, okay. And it's just a you know goodness and fun. It's 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 not gory or or uh in any way particularly scary. It's just just kind of uh, unusual. We enjoy things like that. A little We've had the ghost toward Hampton. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the history is what, what's great, you know. Yeah, yeah. Do you ever write about home? Do you ever write about the environment or set uh, your work in, in those regions? Typically not. Uh, mm -hmm. Now, I've always said everybody's experience comes out in their writing, even if you're writing, uh, doing a science fiction piece about, you know, Flubber Planet or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, you're putting yourself into it. So your experiences are not left behind. But yeah. as to say, this is my experience, and I want you to see it. Uh, right. I've never thought that was legitimate in writing. Uh, maybe it is for some. Yeah, uh, I've personally gotten tired of the me, me, me meme <laughs> in uh, most literature. I see. Uh, I was re reading a story once, and uh, well, I won't say where because I'll make the mag magazine mad. The guy goes on for like 15 pages about how his father was an alcoholic, and because of that, his life was ruined. 
Mm. After about three pages, I'm like, already I got it. You know, I have the drift here. (laughs) I see. I see. I I don't need any (laughs) more. Do you feel like your time in the service influenced a lot of your personality, changed you in in a lot of ways? Or were you always um, certain of, of who you were as an individual? Well, I wasn't in the service. I was working as a civilian oh, for okay. the okay. Navy. I see. Yeah, I, I, I see. worked for uh, six years as a contractor for the Navy mm. down here. This is the largest naval base in the world. You, you're going to work for the Navy somewhere around. Mm. And then I worked uh, for 10 years in Navy medicine I see. Uh, and then worked for 17 years in expeditionary warfare training, which okay. was interesting. Uh, yeah. At least I was. <laughs> the information system security manager, which means I had the highest security clearance in the building. Mm. Uh, I was what they call the oh shit guy. If you're giving a brief that's secret and suddenly a slide pops up that says top secret, you go, oh shit. And then you go get me. <laughs> that was my job. <laughs> and I took care of it. I worked with NCIS and a number of other people. But I think that uh, my personality was largely formed early on. Uh, it, all personalities change. I mean, I'll be different tomorrow than I am today. Uh, and everything that you touch changes you. But the sort of bullheadedness I have, I had by the time I was 15 or 16. Mm. Uh, I was like, you, you you try it. If at first you fail, try it again. And you keep trying until you, you succeed or you break it. One or the other. <laughs> so I got a couple more questions just to be mindful of your time. But I'm curious... Of all the writing that you've done, has there been a project in particular that ha- that was seen in your mind as a problem that needed to be solved? Any any success stories of uh, solving a writing problem? Of course, the, the problem is is that uh, the uh, the uh, microscope looks looks at the closest thing. Uh, of late, solving I think solving we'll find out. How to write Drables was kind of the hardest thing. Uh, I had heard about Drables, and I said, you know, what the heck? A hundred words, <laughs> you, you can't get anywhere in a hundred words. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I started to think, well, wait a minute. What if I took this angle? And I think I've kind of got it figured out. It, it's hard to explain, but there is a certain focus to a Drable that you have to take. And it was a hard nut to, to crack. You had to... I had to kind of figure out I'm not doing a character study. I mean, you have to do a character study in a hundred words. Uh, you don't at the same time wanted to, to have a gotcha moment that, that, that gets old, you know, about the yeah. third gotcha you've read, you've read <laughs> enough of them. So the question is, how do you manipulate the reader's understanding in only a hundred words so that they have empathy for the character, they understand the situation and they can see themselves in the same situation. If you can do that, then you've got a good, good drable. Mm. And it was just hard to, to kind of understand how to get my hand around that. Yeah. Uh, I'm still writing a lot of drables. Uh, unfortunately they've kind of monopolized my time. I haven't written, <laughs> well, I have written a couple of poems since then. I haven't written any flash fiction, but, mm. uh, since I started with drables, they've kind of taken that out of me, <laughs> you'll, but, uh, you'll get back to some other, some other projects then, uh, as soon as they let yeah, you breathe. Eventually. Yeah. So, well, Fortunately for me, I I don't take myself all that seriously. Uh, I know that uh, the only way I could get people to read more books is if I put uh, pictures of naked people in between the the folios. (laughs) 
Uh, so I just do what I can. Oh I hope God. that somebody appreciates it and uh, <laughs> realizes it's just not that serious. So, you know, so is, is the secret to publishing is putting more naked people in the uh, <laughs> in the book? <laughs> if you look at what sells these days, oh my goodness! Uh, you've got uh, Patterson is not even writing his own books. He's having a, a fleet of people write them, and he puts his name on. If you ever read Fifty Shades of Grey, I was not going to read that, but I started seeing so much criticism of it that I started to criticize it. And I said, wait a minute, I can't criticize something I haven't read. And then I read it and realized it was even bad porn. It was like fifth grade level reading. Oh, my goodness. Uh, and uh, didn't make any sense. It was just, just garbage. And then uh, even John Grisham, who we happened to have had dinner with once, uh, mm -hmm. even he will tell you that he's just churning them out for the for the movies. Wow. It's all plastic fiction. Yeah, I mean it's it's tough. I mean the marketability of something takes priority over over the craft, and and that is sort of in in mainstream the biggest issue is is how do we confront that? But as you said, smaller presses, while they may not be perfect, are probably the best solution for something like this. Um, oh, certainly, they're not going to take your poetry book at Random House. It's not going to happen. They do publish a few lost leaders just so they can say they publish it, but it doesn't sell either. I mean, it, it, it's mm. just not going to sell. The yeah. way that my books sell uh, over at Sundial, uh, the guy who runs the place, John, he says that he will actually ask people, what are you looking for? And then he'll go pick up one of my books and hand it to them. And he says, if he can get somebody to touch one of my books, it's a sale. Mm. Uh, but that's him intervening. Nobody goes in there sure, saying, "Hey, sure. you know, have you got any new books by Pointer?" Except people who know me. He does say that there are there's a group of people there now mm. who have read my books, and they're like, "When is the next one coming out?" Yeah. Or probably yeah. the most heartening one is uh, I've had some people buy my fiction, and they don't like poetry, but they'll tell John, "I'll read this guy's poetry." Interesting. So, so yeah. that's that's good. But yeah. ultimately, you've got somebody who's making a physical intervention to sell your book. Right. Well, and, the, you know, like you were saying, that comes down to building your own sort of like your own unit, though, because you're going out of your way to build those relationships, too, and to make that happen uh, in some sense by being your own champion, which I think is is a lesson that we can all benefit from, for sure. Well, you have to if you're afraid of self-promotion or if you want to be the, the wallflower who sits back and everybody else points to, it isn't going to happen. You've got to be the 900-pound gorilla in the room. Mm -hmm. uh, if you aren't, nobody's going to notice you. You're going to be overrun by, by other concerns. And uh, you have to actually go out there and say, hey, I've got something to say. And if you don't want to listen to it, you better run away now. Mm. No, that's wonderful and a uh, great note to end on. Ken, I want to thank you for supporting the debut project that I've put together for the coalition. Um, I'm really uh, thankful that you took the time to, you know, hang out with me for a little bit and share some insights and your perspective, which is wholly different from a lot of the folks that we normally talk to. Um, but it's good because I feel that we just have to be our own champion. We have to persist and maintain a sense of uh, confidence in the work that we're putting out. So it's a great reminder. And uh, I do appreciate it, Ken. Certainly. Thank you much for having me. Awesome. Well, uh, I hope you enjoy. You have a wonderful Sunday. Thanks again for putting up with me in the technical difficulties. 
That's all right. Uh, it's probably my fault that I'm not that big. I was into theory for 33 years. I always had somebody else to set stuff up for me mechanically. <laughs> all right, Ken, you take care. I'll talk real soon. Have a good one. Okay, thanks. Bye. Bye.